And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Where do business and psychology overlap? It's a complicated question that has to do with team dynamics, consciously creating business cultures, and surprisingly, improv. This is according to our guest today, Linda Greel, an associate professor at the University of Michigan who specializes in effective team organization strategies. Linda's research has been published in numerous prestigious publications, ranging from the Academy of Management Journal to the Journal of Applied Psychology. She has two degrees under her belt, one from the Leiden University in the Netherlands and one from the University of Pennsylvania, features in New York Times and Forbes, and awards from both the Academy of Management and the American Psychological Association. And today, he takes me through how business and psychology rely on each other in some surprising ways and how startups have a closer advantage if they understand that intersection. Here's our conversation. Hi, Lindy. Thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Yeah. So you're based in Michigan. Uh, I hope things are slowly back to normal. Yeah, very much so. We're teaching the students in person on campus in the middle of August. So I'm excited wow. to see again. That, that's good. Um, it's, um, uh, I think that's everything seems to be more, you know, the light of the tunnel is here. I hope that stays. So I thought it would be good maybe to give us a little bit about your background, um, how you, you know, choose this areas for your, as part of your career and your passion. Sure. I did my undergraduate studies in business at Wharton, um, followed one of the professors from there over to the Netherlands, when she switched to a psychology program in Europe and did my PhD there. And so my research and teaching now for 20 years has been in this intersection of business and psychology. Um, I've always researched team dynamics, broadly stated, and especially interested in how do you leverage differences in teams and topics around diversity and conflict. When I moved to Stanford maybe 10 years ago or so, I had a lot of friends working on startups, and I just was mystified by um, the lack of awareness around good processes and systems for people in early-stage startups. And so I ended up launching, around that point, about 10 years ago, a line of research and teaching specifically on team dynamics within the startup context, looking at the common problems that occur in early-stage startups, how to plan around that, build in systems and processes, um, and lead more effectively. And I've been doing that now for 10 years, brought the cars over to Michigan two years ago, um, and continue to do research on this intersection of psychology, teams, leadership, and startups. That's great. It's, it's interesting because, you know, not that many people I know who went to business school chose the path of going to PhD and be in academia. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so as you know, that many of our, uh, you know, what we do, we support a lot of the entrepreneur and startups. And one of the things that, you know, as investors, people always, you know, invest in the team. And I think you've done a lot of research about that. And what are the things that you saw throughout your career that, you know, the, the team that started 
you know, very happy and just went bad and just ruined, as a result, just ruined their mission and the company. So we did a review recently of the number one predictor of startup success across all the published articles and startup teams. And what's really interesting is the thing that helps startups the most is formalization of how to work together. And so then to answer your question directly, I think that the problems that most often go wrong are when there isn't formalization of how to work together. There isn't a clear agreement up front about who's going to lead. There's a power struggle then between two founders that puts the company under. That happens all the time. Another one is there isn't a clear agreement about the vision and strategy for the company and where it's going. And that's not integrated enough into daily life in terms of processes and project management. So people start to build two or three different companies and alignment issues put the company under. So a third one is a little less is communication issues and how to communicate and how to interact. And when people don't have good norms, good frameworks for that, you can have personal conflicts that emerge that put the company under. And those would be the big three to me, power struggles, misalignment issues and personal conflicts. So when you mentioned about formalizing uh, how we work together, what would you recommend and suggest? Because I think people sometimes that like, they talk about it, but is that considered as formalizing? Yeah, no, it needs to be on paper. I actually did a research study together with Huggy Rao at Stanford where we investigated this idea of a pre-mortem for a startup as well as prenups. And so what we found is when companies did um, a pre-mortem, but even better, a pre-victorum. So they look at all the why you might succeed. So if you achieve your wildest dreams in three years, what does that look like? Put that on paper so everybody knows the vision. And then backtrack for what are the steps that you had to take to get there? What did that look like? Well, especially in terms of how you run the team. So that probably would mean looking backwards to say, well, we had a clear leader. We had a plan for roles. We had a plan for how our organization structure would evolve. We were intentional about culture. And so then once you do that exercise over what your team needs to achieve the vision, you then can do what we call a prenup or sometimes a team contract, where then you actually have a constitution or a piece of paper that has, this is who we are as a company. This is our vision. This is where we're going. And then importantly, these are the formalized agreements we have for how to get there. You know, this is the role structure. This is the planned evolution of role structure. These are our values and the cultural expectations that arise from those values. Um, these are our ways of communicating and interacting, our normative expectations for how we show up. And so if you do that process up front and formalize the plan, if you will, the data is fairly robust so that will allow startups to succeed better. You know, there's a lot of data even suggesting it can lead to things like IPO. So oftentimes when uh, founders get together, they have an idea and they are all impatient. They want to get up and running really quickly. And having this conversation that you're suggesting can be a very difficult conversation because it kind of opens up your vulnerability, like what is important to you. Uh, how do you recommend people to go over that home and just do it? Well, you're going to have to do it at some point and getting it done up front before um, things have festered and become toxic saves enormous time and will truly save your company from going under. The longer you put it off, the bigger the problem becomes. You know, if you haven't decided who's going to be the leader of the startup and you put that off for six months, you know, you have two people who dig in more and more towards taking on leadership responsibilities and undoing that and trying to formalize back to one later is much harder than just having an open conversation up front. 
it doesn't take a lot of time, you know, half a day, you know, maybe it needs to be a little bit longer if it doesn't go well. And then you can bring in a third party, um, a mentor, things like that to facilitate. But it's much easier to resolve a conflict at the front than it is when you're six months down the road or two years down the road at the worst case. So it's kind of like with pulling a Band-Aid off. The sooner you do it, the quicker you do it, the better um, for the pain for the startup. So that's, you know, that's all about planning ahead. And what about startup who has gone through, you know, all the operation and then, you know, a year from now and then they hear about our podcast today and that, well, maybe we should do it. Is it too late? What do you suggest for people? Always better late than never. It's never too late. Um, you know, it's a little bit more difficult, but it's important to do. Um, getting mentorship, advising, coaching can be helpful if you're a little bit later on and you have some more deep-seated issues to work through. Um, but it's also important whether you're doing it for the first time or, you know, you are iterating that you keep iterating on this. It's not like you do this once and you never do it again. And so you update it as you go. As you pivot, you're going to have to update your vision. As you bring on money, you might have to update the way that you work together because you need new access to tools or technology for collaboration, things like that. So it should be a living document. You know, so in a sense, it's unfortunate to get it started earlier rather than later, but it's going to be a living document you're working on, you know, one year and two years in, et cetera. And as an investor, I don't think, I mean, maybe I should, uh, to ask the company if they have such a document. Is it pretty, is it a standard that you think that, or is it more like the exception? No, that I see do look for um, indicators which would likely correlate with having a document. So investors tend to value experience in startups um, and or with the industry that they're going into. And when we did that analysis, the 300 plus published data sets in startups, Again, formalization was the number one predictor, but number two was experience of the founding team, be it in startups and or the industry. And so people who've been in their third startup, I usually find they know all this. They're much more likely to do a contract, to have a plan for culture, things like this. And so I think often investors are looking for some proxy of that through startup experience, which will lend itself into having the knowledge and awareness of tools like this. Another great question I often see venture capitalists ask in terms of knowledge of team dynamics, is has someone on the founding team played team sports before? I've heard that from one of the founders of the top firms before is a key question that he loves to rely on. And I can see the reasoning for that because if you have done a lot of team sports historically, you've run into team conflicts, team issues, and probably would appreciate the value of the contract and maybe have already explored using it as a tool. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And um, when you see a lot of technical founders, I'm not trying to be stereotyping here, but oftentimes they spend a lot of time working on, you know, science since they were young. And they often think of that as their passion rather than being in a team sport. Um, how do 
you overcome that if you never have that experience? Well, I mean, so one, diversity is good. It's nice to have people from a lot of different backgrounds on a team, broadly stated. Mm-hmm. Um, two, you know, team sport is broadly defined in my mind. You know, maybe you were the captain of the chess team or the supercomputing team. You know, I did the supercomputing club in high school. You know, if you had a leadership position in that club, you know, that would be the same type, same to, in my mind as being captain of the soccer team, that you have an experience in organizing and leading a group of people. And so... You know, you touch on a bit about team diversity. And I think nowadays you, there's a lot of uh, talk about it's so important to have the team diversity and how, because sometimes it's a could be an afterthought after they, they form the, fo- the founders form the team rather than from the beginning. And how do you encourage more of that from the beginning? And how important it is to, you know, predict the success when you have a team diversity. Yeah, it's definitely one of the biggest predictors of startup success, being without formalization to experience. The next one that's been the most robust in research is diversity, and whether that's diversity in functional background or diversity in things like gender and race. Once you get into things like gender and race, having an inclusive culture is important to leverage diversity bonuses. I think that sometimes the trouble that startups get into is maybe they do try to hire a diverse group up front, you know, and or be anti-bias in their hiring to ensure they achieve a diverse workforce. But if they don't have a conducive culture, they'll see a lot of churn. And then what I see then founders doing is they blame the diversity that they've hired mm-hmm. versus self-reflecting and being aware of the problems within their own culture to embrace diversity in day-to-day discussions and meetings to let people of different backgrounds have voice, speak up, and have impact. And so I think it's important early on for founders to be aware of the value of diversity, to hire from it, even from the time of choosing a co-founder. And from day one, also be thinking about culture, you know, and how do you have an inclusive culture that will make it safe for people to share different ideas, different perspectives. Because at the end of the day, that's one of the biggest dangers for startups is groupthink, right? Of everybody going in one direction and no one saying, hey, what about this? And so diversity allows for that, but you have to have a culture where diversity can be expressed. Um, for founders that want more information on this, I have a Coursera course on leading diverse teams and organizations that breaks down the math behind diversity bonuses and gets into how do we get anti-bias in hiring and how do we create more inclusive cultures. There's a whole lot there. And I think it's just really important for anybody who's leading any type of team or organization to have gone through some form of basic training on DEI. And it's important what we know from science that it's not a one-off training. One session on bias tends to backfire but a multi-week program that really unpacks what diversity is, what inclusion is, what equity is, and looks at behaviors to support these three you know, pillars will have a positive impact for business returns. And how important is the role of the founder CEO in kind of set the stage or lead by example and have really believe in it too, because you can't just fake it? Huge. You know, founders imprint on the company, you know, and so it's also why formalizing um, values, culture, and processes is helpful is it allows the founder to be intentional about what is being imprinted. You know, if there is no formalization um, or the formalization is poorly done, you know, like at one point, one of our um, more notorious startups in the Valley had, I think it was 36 stated values. And so if you have no formalization or you have overly complex formalization, then people just look to the founder to see what to do. And in that case, the founder is very aggressive. So everybody just emulated that that behavior and it led to a lot of lawsuits from trouble and scaling 
because there was not, no one knew how to behave and the founder wasn't necessarily entirely conscious of the impact that his behavior had on the company. And so the better case scenario, founders who are intentional about the values they want to imprint, they try to walk the talk as best they can, but no one's perfect, right? right. And so the more that you can build the scaffolds and structures in the organization to imprint the right values, it helps it be easier to lead and to make sure that people are behaving the way that you want them to versus emulating behaviors that you might do on an off day. And I think oftentimes, you know, when I was working in a corporate world where we always talk about the vision, uh, the whole exercise, many people just glaze over like, oh, here we go. It's just an exercise. How do you ensure that? What are the things that make sure that that conversation actually is something that everybody in the team really take it seriously and believe in it? I mean, I'm a huge fan of objectives and key results, you know, or other types of of waterfall goal setting programs, you know, so a vision at the end of the day should be back ended into what I'm doing today. It shouldn't just be this lofty exercise to sit around and daydream about the future and we never ever use it or touch it again. You know, it should be directly implicated to the work that I, as minion number four, (laughs) do on a daily basis. So in that sense, then a vision exercise is not some touchy feely thing that we never use again. But it forms a basis then for to say, okay, our vision in three years is this. Great. What is our strategy to get there? What are the pillars of our strategy? Great. And then for that strategy, what are the objectives we need to achieve this year? What are the key results that underlie that? And within that, who owns what on a weekly basis to get there? You know, Peter Thiel talks a lot about the importance of being able to back end some goals and to say, okay, you know, it's one thing to have a, a big vision of the future, but it's another thing to be able to lay out the framework to get there. And now that we have much more project management software like Asana, where you can integrate objects and key results into you know, the, the program, that's the first thing people see when they log in. That's then where the vision comes to life, if people can make that connection. There's been really great research in things like NASA and other organizations of where if everybody in the organization understands how they contribute to the goal. So if the janitors cleaning the shop, you know, the floor in Houston for NASA understand that they are helping put astronauts on the moon. People work harder, they're more engaged, they're more committed, they're more creative, they engage in courageous conversations and all the things. And so, again, it's really important to do these vision conversations and then back end them so that every single person owns a part of the vision. It's not just listening to the founder talk about something, but it's shaping the daily organizational reality so each and every person in the startup is able to understand how the work they do relates to a desired outcome in the future. And that's also including, say, if you want to have a diversity and inclusion, how that reflect to their day-to-day work. Yeah, exactly. The best practice in DEI is not to have it as a separate objective, a key result, but have it embedded across everything. And so it's just best practice. Okay, if one of our strategies is um, diversifying a product offering, okay, well, how will we have key results within that around DEI? You know, maybe it means that we choose our vendors based on their DEI metrics. Um, or maybe it means that the way in which we present our new products, we make sure we're getting a feedback from a diversity of personas from our customers, customers to make sure that our product can serve a diverse clientele. Um, when we're staffing the team for that key result, maybe it's also thinking about how to make sure that we have diversity in the team that's serving the key result. And so DEI shouldn't stand alone in an OKR system, but it should be embedded throughout. Mm-hmm. So um, what about if you have like a leader who, I mean, some people can be very cynic about the whole DEI. And how do you convince that person to change, to see their value in the DEI? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of polarization around DEI right now, where you have social justice warriors and people who aren't bought in. And I think both sides at times um, don't come from a place of grace and compassion and seeking to build bridges. At the end of the day, we need everyone Mm -hmm. in order to make change. And approaching the conversation from a place of anger from either side isn't helpful. And so whenever I teach in DEI, the first thing I always start off with is growth mindset. You know, the world's not, you know, black or white. We all live in a gray zone. No one person is single-handedly a good person or a bad person. No one is categorically 100% racist or, you know, 0% racist. Instead, all of us probably show some level of bias on a daily, you know, level. Um, and some of our identities that we have have experienced bias. And so the more you get people into a growth mindset, you look at the complexity of identities when you're starting this conversation with people, because if you look at your five different identities, I'm white and I'm a woman. As being white, I have privilege. Um, I have had advantages from that identity. Being a woman, I've experienced bias and disadvantages because of that identity. But even within my identity as a woman, not only have I experienced bias, I've probably also shown bias to other women. And so the more you can get people into that complexity and realizing it's not this big, hairy, crazy, scary thing that if you show bias, but instead, no, it's part of our day-to-day experience, part of the human brain for each and every one of us, and that we need to have compassion for ourselves, compassion for others, to generate self-awareness, the willing to, willingness to give each other feedback, have courageous conversations with one another, and to learn. And to start to build in those systems, those formalized systems, to combat bias in our daily lives and in our organizations in terms of how we run meetings, how we hire, things like that. But the starting point of any conversation with someone who's reluctant is coming from a place of compassion, um, having a growth mindset, acknowledging yourself, the mistakes that you've made and being vulnerable. Whenever I teach on DEI to an audience for the first time, I share examples of times I've shown bias. You know, I teach on this. I've been research university 20 years. I still show bias. I don't want to. I don't mean to. Mm-hmm. But you have to fight the smog in society that we soak up. This in your brain neurons that fire whenever you make a judgment. And so if you're tired, you didn't have enough sleep, you're more likely to rely on the categories you see in television, which have bias. And so it's a daily fight and daily vigilance and sharing your own journey in that can help make it safe for others to start to enter the conversation as well. Dolly, too at NYU has a wonderful book called How Good, How Good People Fight Bias. And I love it as just a great starting point for people to get over your own ego, if you will, around DEI and acknowledge that this is a struggle for all of us. And it's okay <laughs> to acknowledge it. That's the first step. And then we can start to do something about it. But you first have to get that point of acknowledgement. And for the first time that someone thinks that they've never shown bias, they're hit with that. I often equate it to the grief process of someone dying. Because this person had an identity in themselves as unbiased, as a good person. And when you tell them that, hey, you know, bias does exist, we all do it, for them, their identity as a good person dies. And then what we know in the grief process is the first reaction is denial. To say, no, that's just not true. I'm not biased. I've never been biased in my whole life. Mm-hmm. And that's why then if you have these one-off sessions, it can backfire or if you really attack someone on it. But instead, if you create a safe place for an ongoing conversation, you can work through that denial and then they often hit a point of anger. And then they hit shame. You know, a lot of white America last summer was in shame spirals during Black Lives Matters, which at least is moving in the process, but it's not great then because you're not taking action when you're in a shame spiral. And so eventually then it's helping people and being supportive and compassionate to get them from that point of lacking awareness to then action and providing space for the emotions in that, which means 
compassion, grace, ongoing discussions, formalized longer-term trainings and all of that. But again, just starting from a point of growth mindset, vulnerability, and a desire to truly build connections to help people move forward on this versus just attacking and labeling on either side. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's a long process. Uh, it's, uh, I think we it's are. never over. We're always working at it. That's you know, the job is done. There's so much more left to do. Yeah, and I think we all are impatient. We just want to see results right away. And I think we don't let uh, t- you know the journey somehow you know takes its time. And especially when you're busy, you feel like okay, check that box. But this is something that you can't just check your box. You have to have the ongoing conversation and. I think oftentimes you feel like, you know, uh, getting a lot of the project done is so much more pressing than taking care of the wholeness of the team. And uh, I think that is an eye-opening, which brought me to my next question. This all, this DEI is about how to resolve team conflict because that can be problematic. And there's so many different conflict, you know, things that cause conflict. And how do you ensure, you know, people don't go too far and then solve that conflict? Yeah, a couple of it's, uh, tips that are relevant for both DEI as conflict more generally, be it conflict about the strategy of the company or what color to make your landing page, is really cementing into your culture in the startup, um, a, a culture of curiosity that if someone has a different point of view, your first reaction is to ask them a question. Tell me more. Why do you think that? What are your reasons? What, you know, what made you interested in strategy for you? Most people, most times, their first reaction to someone with a different view is to offer their opinion of you want to do strategy Y. Well, I think we should do strategy X. And the value of differences in teams comes from elaborating on different information. And so the more that your team has a culture of curiosity of asking each other questions, and if you count the number of statements in a meeting and there's more question marks and periods, that is a good team. But because of, as you're mentioning, this bias that startups have, we have to do, do, do. They don't take the time to ask questions. But the data is robust that startups do better when they have a diversity of perspective in the room, when they take time for the team. So one is asking questions is a great way to keep conflicts from becoming toxic because a task conflict is healthy. That's what drives innovation, creativity, and business outcomes. That's where diversity becomes manifest is in a task debate. The trick then though is how do you not have it become toxic? And I know from my own research and a meta-analysis, 70% of the time, 7-0, interpersonal task debates become relationship conflicts. That whenever someone presents a different view, some part of us is uncomfortable. And we're really bad with being uncomfortable. So then we try to punish the person by saying, well, my view is this, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Versus being able just to sit in the discomfort of someone having a different idea than you and just getting curious and not immediately rushing to judgment, rushing to close the door, but being able to be tolerant of discomfort, which is really important. So a culture of curiosity, a culture of embracing discomfort and being okay, sitting in it and not rushing to generalize it. To say, okay, that person offers this opinion because they're stupid or they're wrong or they're out to get me. But just to be curious of, wait, why are you offering this opinion? Before I decide, let me ask you why you're offering this opinion. So culture of curiosity is a big one. And then when people express dissenting views, there's work they can do in the language they use. 
I'm a huge fan of improv. The Bay Area has a lot of great improv troops and schools and classes. And I think it's one of the best skill sets founders can have, honestly, for having good team meetings. And so if you're offering an opposing view on a team, if someone says X and you say no, it's Y, in improv, that would shut down the entire scene, right? Like if I, if I said, hey, I'm a tree, and you walked up to me, you're like, no, you're not. Well, end of scene, right? And the first thing you learn in improv is if I say, hey, I'm a tree, that's an offering to the group and you should treat it as a gift and find something to say yes to. Maybe that wasn't really where you wanted to go in your head, but what's 10% of what I said you could say yes to and yes and me. So yes, you are a tree and it is a sunny day. And so you're able to build ideas together. So within the leadership center I run, I have my own startup, if you will, of seven people. And that's one of the biggest cultural rules we have is if you have a different point of view, to what someone else just said, you have to find something to say yes to in the previous comment when you offer your view. So should we offer our crisis challenge to the bachelor students this year? Yes or no? Someone said yes. Someone else could say, okay, yes, I think we should offer it to them. Um, however, I think we could also do it in this manner. To where you're constantly building on what you're saying versus being oppositional. So culture of curiosity and yes and language and team discussions are two quick tips. Um, the third one I'll give that's out there for conflict management startups is often in startups, there's personal relationships that are brought into the startup. It could be a husband and wife that are co-founders. could be a father and a son. It could be close friendships. And so it's really important when you're having those task debates to separate that from the personal relationship. Because sometimes when people disagree then and they have a close relationship, they're even more likely to take it personally. So what I've seen startup coaches do in situations like that is literally paint a square on the floor of the startup office and say, when you walk into that square, you leave your personal relationship outside and anything that you say cannot be held against you. You're just talking about the startup in the square. It's not personal. That line says it's not personal. Other founders I know have traditions of founder walks where they can give each other feedback and have discussions in ways that aren't taken personally because they know it's a recurrent thing that every week at 3 p.m. we go for a walk together. And anything said during that walk is presumed to be coming from a place of good intent and openness. And that way it's much better than if people just say something on the fly and you don't know the intent, you know you're too busy to be curious, and then it just goes awry. So culture of curiosity, yes and. And making sure you're building in structures and processes to separate the person from the discussion. It seems like a lot of the thing that you're saying is that it needs a lot of self-discipline. Yes. And obviously engineers um, are among the best at team things, even though I think many engineers wouldn't necessarily self-identify as being great with psychology. But psychology and engineering are all about systems, right? If I turn X on, then Y happens. And interpersonal interaction and team dynamics is the exact same way. It's just getting really intentional and disciplined about the system over what I say is an input of the system and will influence what I get back from others. And how can I be as disciplined in my social interaction as I am in my code or my design for an engine? So you're saying, because oftentimes engineers feel like, well, I don't have this good. They do, though, which is really interesting because they think in terms of systems. And that's what psychology is. It's just thinking in terms of systems. The team is a system. Oh, okay, that's interesting. It's you're right because now you know after you mention it, I think a lot of the thing that you say, like a process, formalizing everything. It's just you just need to transfer that to a lot of the yeah. communication yeah. and relationship. And mm-hmm. I think 
that's hire more people who have the engineering mindset then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I know I cannot, I could uh, ask you a lot more questions and I, I, uh, up, uh, I'm running out of time here. But thank you so much for sharing your insight. And I learned so much from our conversation today. Happy to chat. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.